0: Welcome to the Cover 3 Podcast with your hosts, Chip Patterson and Barton Simmons. It's your call for the best college football coverage. From National Signing Day to the National Championship and everything in between, CBS Sports presents the Cover 3 Podcast.
1: And welcome back to the Cover 3 Podcast here on CBS Sports that's Tom Frenone. I'm Chip Patterson. It's Saturday night. We've still got Washington in action, Boise State in action, Wyoming, San Diego State with just a beautiful fourteen to six game. About a third of the way through the third quarter. Uh, Tom, we are, we are lacking Barton Simmons. Do you want do you want to give him a call right now? It's about twelve twenty seven on the East Coast, and I know he's in Charleston. Do you think that um, he and his wife would like that?
0: I figure that at the moment, Barton is on a dance floor making somebody's aunt feel young again right now. So I don't know <laughs> if we should call
1: Um uh, Yeah, any weddings during football season? Do you have strong takes? The internet has strong takes. Do you?
0: I, I pretend I do. I don't. I will say that I've had some cousins get married during football season and I have not gone to their weddings and it's not because I don't love my cousins it's that in this job there are about 14 days a year where I feel like you know are like the important days (laughs) and I just feel like I need to show up for them. So, I mean, you know, like there was all that talk this week. I don't know if you heard about it, but like the Diamondbacks pitcher Daniel Hudson missing the first game of a playoff series because his kid was being born and people were giving him crap about it. But uh, not quite that kind of same situation. And I feel like, you know, my cousins, when they get married, they're still going to be my cousins. I'll still meet them. I'll still meet the new family. You know, we'll get to know each other later. So I I don't think missing a wedding is the biggest deal.
1: I've been to two weddings I've I've gotten off work for two weddings that I've been in and I've missed a lot of weddings and it makes me sad, but I don't hold it against them. I mean it's it's their wedding, right? I mean it's yeah. it's it's not my party. I we already got to experience that. So that's, and that's the thing that's good. Like,
0: unless it's like an immediate close relative or a close friend, it's not like somebody's gonna be like, Yeah, I mean, my wedding's okay, but it would have been a lot better if Chiff was there. <laughs> well,
1: they always you know I mean? say that. <laughs> um, all right, but we, we – uh, I hope Barton had fun, and he will be back, of course, um, on, uh, on Monday for Monday's show to offer whatever takes he had. In terms of, uh, of our locks, I guess our, our lock, Unity took its uh, a loss, right? Second loss oh. of the season. Yeah, we went we went two, two and one, one. today. In lock unities two and one in lock unities. So plenty to celebrate right there. Uh, we'll begin with uh, with with LSU Florida, where the final score was indeed a an LSU cover, but the the way that it broke down, I think that we've got a lot to uh, a lot to look at Florida for, but then also an adjustment on on LSU. Kind of it, kind of one of those games where you uh, you you embrace the nature of it being a top 10 SEC battle at night in Tiger stadium. And you credit Florida for showing up while also kind of getting a a good feel for LSU, being able to take it, like take a hit and then be able to respond down 28, 21. uh, The defense only allows seven points in the second half and gets a couple stops in the red zone. And so even though I think there are many uh, nits to pick from the Tigers performance, I I come away feeling like LSU just in in the pass-fail sense, definitely passed, and maybe even gets to uh, get some really big check marks for its win against the Gators.
0: Yeah. I mean, this, this proved to me that like, I've talked about it before I wrote about it a few weeks ago. I talked about it here where how I felt that LSU is the biggest threat to Alabama and the SEC. And tonight just kind of drove that point home for me because Everything that Florida had to deal with and that we saw from LSU is why I think that they're a threat to Alabama. And we'll get to Georgia in a little bit, but I feel like when you combine what happened with the Bulldogs earlier on Saturday and seeing how LSU handled Florida tonight, it just kind of drove that point home even further for me because this is a team that can score points on anybody. They put up 42 points and over 500 yards. They averaged 10.6 yards per play. Against a Florida defense that is very good, a Florida defense that essentially shut Auburn down last week. And if you look at Alabama, you know, th- that's a team that's scoring 50 points a game. It's not like it was, a, you know, however many years ago. You can't beat Alabama 9 to 6. You're going to need to score 40 points at a minimum to beat it. And if you look around at the SEC right now, LSU strikes me as the only offense in the conference that's capable of doing that. And I think that's the kind of sense you got tonight. And at the same time, I'm impressed with Florida. Even if right. they lost, man. Yes, <laughs> they looked really good. Al Trask played really well tonight. He had the interception in the end zone that kind of served as you know, the killer. But Trask, after dealing with that, getting the sprained MCL last week against Auburn, going on the road to play LSU at night in Tiger Stadium... And he was completely calm, composed. He was, he was throwing the ball well. He had over 300 yards, three touchdowns. He was able to run. They were doing like read options with him. What was driving me insane was Dan Mullen kept insisting on putting Emery Jones in like these key situations. And I'm like, listen, if Trask is struggling, okay. I don't know why you're taking him out in these key situations for Emory Jones. And it's making your offense incredibly predictable. Like as soon as Jones would come in, LSU said, okay, let's put nine guys in the box. Let's see if he could beat us with his arm. And for the most part, he couldn't. He may, he completed, you know, he was one for two. He only threw two passes, but it was mostly a kind of QB run game. And LSU did a very good job of stopping it. So other than that, I, I, but. Overall,
1: like I said, I was still very impressed by what the Gators did tonight, even though they lost by 14. So you're saying you are not a fan of Dan Mullen trying to catch 2006 vibes with Trask as his Chris Leak and Emory Jones as his Tim Tebow?
0: No, and I mean, Emory Jones is very talented and is probably going to win quite a few games for the Gators in his career. But I just don't think tonight. I feel like it was a situation where he prepared this week thinking, hey, you know, maybe my QB Kyle Trask is going to have some problems and we're going to have to have a plan B. We're going to have to have a counter punch. And then Trask came out and played really well, but he still felt like, well, we prepared for it. We have to use it. And it was just, it was like, I, I think he maybe should have just called an audible and let Trask do what Trask was doing. Cause Kyle was cooking, man. He was playing really well. And I thought, I mean, for the first half, Trask and Joe Burrow were trading blow for blow. You know, they, they were marching up and down the field. Both offenses were scoring quickly And it was, you know, very much a shootouty game. And I thought Trask was fantastic. And I think that, you know, I think Trask is a much better fit for Florida going forward than Felipe Franks was simply because while Franks is talented, he takes a lot of chances that you really don't want your QB taking. And I feel like Trask has just as much talent as Franks does, but he's a little smarter with his decisions and he's not doing it. He's not taking those crazy risks, he takes the smarter risks. So. I, I think he's better for their ceiling going forward. And it's just it, – this is this was just a great game. I mean, that that's really my biggest takeaway. It's like it was a top – it was a matchup of two teams in the top ten with a lot of hype that actually lived up to the hype, and it was a lot of fun to watch at the same time. It's like, okay, I will take like four or five more games just like this, please.
1: So uh, LSU makes some defensive adjustments. They start bringing a little bit more pressure, uh, leaving their – cornerbacks and their defensive backs out in man-free, kind of putting them out there to go make plays. Derek Stingley, who had been picked on and gave up some balls earlier, comes up with the big play that you mentioned down near the end of the game. LSU's defense in the first half was, uh, among the conversation, a little bit of the criticism. Again, if there are nits to pick with LSU's performance, do you see LSU's defense as big picture when you look at the team something to be concerned about or is it one where you can excuse it just based on the nature of the game
0: I'm not super concerned about it because this isn't a situation like we saw last year with Oklahoma where it was You couldn't rely on Oklahoma's defense to get a stop. LSU's defense can get stops. It's a very talented team. It has a very talented defensive line. It's got good linebackers, and it has a bunch of NFL players, in it's secondary. So I'm not concerned about it. I think this is just a situation where if you think about what the narrative was in the SEC for so long, it was just, you know, our defense. We play defense in the SEC, blah, blah, blah. Well— It's also because you didn't have a lot of great offenses in your conference, which helps make your defenses look better. And you run into a situation where you look in the NFL now too – You've got elite players on every defense in the NFL, but guess what? The offenses are still winning every single week, and the SEC is kind of approaching that situation with Alabama and LSU now, where even if you have elite players and elite talent, if you're going up against an offense that is schemed well and has plenty of talent itself, the offense is going to win out more often than not in the long run. So... When I look at LSU and I look at them, if I'm comparing them to Alabama, I'm not as worried about their defense because, A, like I said, they've got plenty of talent and they've shown they can get stops. And, B, it's not like Alabama's got to shut right. down defense either. So, right. no, it, it's not a huge concern to me. If, if you could score 50 points a game, your defense doesn't become that much of a problem if, as long as it's not allowing 30 points per game. And that's not what LSU is doing.
1: You did have the live blog for that game in Baton Rouge. Any other uh, major takeaways that stood out or or interesting nuggets or facts during your work?
0: Uh, I think it's kind of scary. The scariest thing for me, if I'm anybody in the in the SEC tonight, is that the one thing that LSU hadn't been doing a great job of on offense was running the ball. Uh, I think they were averaging like four point two yards per carry, which is pretty mediocre tonight. They averaged nine point one yards per carry against Florida. You know what I mean? A Florida defense that's been top 20 in the country in run defense this year. So if all of a sudden LSU has found a run game to pair with what Joe Burrow and those receivers have been able to do all season long, good luck.
1: Um, how about this? Number Florida entered the game number two in the country in sacks. Zero sacks against mm-hmm. LSU. Uh, some of that scheme, uh, all, some of that's also them doing a good job of stepping up to the plate. And then I think that did... Were there any LSU turnovers?
0: Uh, no, there was only the one turnover. Trask's interception was the only turnover in the entire game. It was a clean played game. There weren't a lot of penalties either. It yep. was it was a very clean, enjoyable game. It was something we don't get a whole lot of.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, Florida also number one in the country in takeaways. So you, you don't get the takeaways. You don't get the sacks. Um, LSU scores the points. It's the way it works. Mm-hmm. The team, team that it struggled to score points, and a team that what did not play a very clean game. Uh, let's 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 talk about these Georgia Bulldogs because we talked on this podcast. We're like, oh, I don't know if this team is really built to be able to blow teams out. I don't know if this team is built to be able to hang with uh, an LSU if it starts to get wild, with an Alabama if you need to score forty points to win. And sure enough, man, like this was the worst. Uh, I I ventured. I only. Felt comfortable in the moment saying it was uh, the worst game of 2019 for Jake Fromm. But I, I think that the the postmortem from Athens has really revealed that it's a consensus opinion. This was the worst game uh, that Jake Fromm's probably had as a starting quarterback. And he's had some games where he wasn't as much of a difference maker, but he was a part of four Turnovers in this game, uh, including an interception in overtime, including a pick six, including uh, a crucial uh, fumb- lost fumble on a quarterback center exchange, and this offense—I mean, they—they—they they, they outgained South Carolina by a dramatic number. Um, you know, things were just like the the miscues and the mistakes compounded on each other. And I just – I look at Georgia and it kind of feels like if you thought that Georgia was playing with fire with the the nature of the, the way that they operate offensively, then this was the game where it all came, came in on itself. And I didn't think it was going to be against South Carolina. I thought no. that this was going to be something that we saw come up against Florida or something that we saw come up against Auburn or later in the season. But it happens here at home against the Gamecocks – like, what do we make of the Georgia Bulldogs based on this performance?
0: You know, it's I had this feeling or this thought as I was watching the game. If we think back a few weeks ago when Notre Dame went into Athens and played well, and our takeaway from seeing Notre Dame play well against Georgia was, hey, Notre Dame, they might be better than we thought. This is a pretty good team. And I'm now I'm wondering if the takeaway should have been, oh, wow, maybe Georgia's not as good as we're assuming it is by putting it at number three and in the top five because i mean georgia didn't really play that much differently in this game than it did against notre dame a few weeks ago the problem was like you said the four turnovers and of the three interceptions i think the one in overtime was not on Fromm. that with that he hit his receiver in his hands that should have been caught but the first two the pick six was on Fromm, was a throw he shouldn't have made and the second one was just a bad throw that uh Let's. I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Israel Mukwamu just made a terrific catch on. I mean, he hit all three of the interceptions in this game for South Carolina. He had himself a good day. But it was just this is. It gets to the heart of the problem with Georgia. If you run the, they ran 95 plays today, Chip. Mm Mm-hmm. 95. They outgained South Carolina by nearly 200 yards. South Carolina had 11 penalties for 68 yards.
1: Oh, and and they, were, and they were down to their third string quarterback with Ryan Holinsky yes, knocked out yes. of the game early and in Ryan the third Holinsky quarter. Gets
0: knocked out, Dakari and Joiner has to come in, and it's it's not like Joiner comes in off the bench and plays well. He was six or twelve for
1: thirty nine yards. Did you hear it, uh, Muschamp say that Joiner hadn't even been practicing all the way during the week because of a hamstring issue? I could tell <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't go.
0: This this. By all accounts, this is a game that South Carolina should not have had any prayer of winning. But Georgia, it's they had the four turnovers. And ironically enough, South Carolina, the only points they got out of those four turnovers were on the pick six. The other three turnovers, they didn't score off of this, including you know in the overtime. So this wasn't a situation where South Carolina took advantage of. Of the turnovers as much as those turnovers Kept Georgia from scoring the points it Should have ended up with to win this game And never be in the position to go to overtime And then one of the other things that Loomed in this for me was something we've also Talked about just some of Kirby Smart's Decision making mm. just kind of baffling at the end of that game i mean there was some questionable timeout usage in the fourth quarter that put georgia in the spot late in the game where it had no timeouts left so it's sitting there with the choice of we could kick like a, like a 57 or 58 yard field goal whatever it would have been or we could throw the hail mary if you had some timeouts you probably couldn't have gotten a bit closer and put rodrigo Blankenship in a better position to make the kick but even so like rodrigo missed the the kick in overtime But I have more confidence in him given some of the big kicks that he's made for Georgia during his career. I feel like you have a higher probability of him making that long field goal at the end of regulation than you do of converting on a Hail Mary. So I didn't understand why they, you know, they didn't go they didn't try to attempt the field goal because I felt like they had a better chance to win. But Well, Muschamp didn't exactly hold himself in the highest esteem either because I don't know what South Carolina was doing at the end of the game. This was a combination of really sloppy play by Georgia and some questionable coaching decisions by Kirby Smart at the end that kind of just put them in positions where they were allowing South Carolina a chance to win the game. And South Carolina, although somewhat reluctantly it seemed at times, took advantage of it and won the game.
1: So I've got a bubbling thought from this uh, that this game is really built on. It is that... Georgia's offensive line is really, really big. They're all tall. They're all strong. Uh, they they all weigh a lot of pounds, and a lot of them are probably going to go on to play in the NFL. And so because they are highly touted and talented prospects, we look at all of them together, and we see them just mowing teams down when Georgia's playing its best games. DeAndre Swift running behind them. We're like, wow, this is incredible. But when – we have seen now a couple of times this year um, that Georgia offensive line get overwhelmed and I just mm-hmm. and, and I wonder if we we need to go do that thing that we do with teams sometimes where you say all right like I understand that individually these are all very talented individuals but as a unit I don't know if Georgia's offensive line in the 2019 season has become a dominating unit when it comes to playing top competition
0: Yeah, I mean, they they struggled against Notre Dame. That, that, That was one of the bigger surprises from that game is that Notre Dame's front seven, which is good and talented. But I mean, they were overwhelming them at times. And today, they had what South Carolina finished with three sacks and six tackles for loss. Georgia didn't have a single sack in the game. So I mean, You know, Jake Fromm was under pressure in this game. He wasn't getting a ton of time to make throws. Georgia's running game only averaged four yards per carry. Even if you take out the sacks from that equation, they still only averaged 4.6 yards per carry. And when you think about what Georgia wants to do, what its identity is, it's more than 4.6 yards per carry. And they just weren't able to do that against the Gamecocks today. So this is a Georgia team that I think, frankly, is not as good as we thought. And based on what we saw today with both Georgia and Florida losing, Florida might be better than Georgia this year. Florida might be the favorite to win that division now.
1: How dare you besmirch Missouri's name like that?
0: I'm sorry, Mizzou, but I mean, you know, (laughs) just playing the odds.
1: Um, So Georgia has uh, Missouri. That game is going to be at home. It's got mm-hmm. the Florida game in Jacksonville. It ha- Georgia has Texas A&M at home mm-hmm. at the end of the season. It plays at Auburn. What do you think Georgia's record is at the end of the season?
0: It's funny. My Friday five this week was ranking undefeated teams that had the best chance of finishing with three losses, and I didn't really heavily consider Georgia as one of the five possible teams, but after what I saw today... I mean, like you said, they've got Mizzou left, they've got Florida left, they've got Auburn left, they've got A and M left, and it's not just that they have those four games; they're in back to back weeks. Like next week, they play Kentucky, and then they go on a bye, and then it's a four week stretch of Florida, Missouri, at Auburn, A and M. That's you know, like the body blow theory. By the end of that stretch, Georgia could be pretty banged up or in some trouble. Now, I, I don't. I think they're probably going to finish around ten and two. But nine and three is no longer out of the question. They they could lose to Florida and then they could lose easily on the road to Auburn or maybe even at home to AM. So I, I I would say ten and two, nine and three.
1: Right now, would you pick Florida to win the East? Yes. Wow.
0: Yeah, I I would pick Florida to win the cocktail party right now. Things could change, obviously. You know, this is college football and teams look different every single week. But it's just Georgia. Even you know, it's it killed Vandy. It killed Murray State. It killed Arkansas State. Seemed pretty lackluster against Tennessee. It killed or against Notre Dame. It looked great against Tennessee, and then today happened. So I feel like you know, if if it's playing a bad team, Georgia's looked great. If it's playing anybody with half a pulse, it's looked a little you know. Uh. And Florida, just based on what we've seen with its game against Auburn and now tonight against LSU, they seem like they're better equipped for those games than the Bulldogs do to this point.
1: Before we get on to Red River, uh, quick Alabama in the SEC on CBS Game of the Week goes into College Station, uh, takes care of Texas A&M. 47-28 is your final right there. Tua Tagovailoa setting a new school record in the win. It's another big Yak Day. Ah, Yak, 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 <laughs> Yak, 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 As uh, As Henry Ruggs, Devonta Smith, Jalen Waddle, Jerry Judy, um, the 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 four horsemen of the Alabama wide receiver room, just turning turning ten yard passes into sixty yard gains. It's what they do. It's uh, it's it is another day for for Alabama to be able to comfortably lean back on the, the bet, one of the best passing attacks in the country uh, as they're able to go on the road against what, what we properly pr- introduced as the toughest opponent that they had faced so far. I thought that Texas A&M showed up, threw a couple punches early, but it is so, so difficult when Alabama has those kind of counters and those kind of responses with those quick strike touchdowns.
0: Yeah, you've got to play like a perfect game for the most part if you're A&M to to really pull this off. And it's, I think the bigger question though, Chip, is Tua threw an interception today. Andy threw for fewer than 300 yards. So I mean, is he done? Is he washed?
1: <laughs> is that's it? We t- yeah, it's, have we
0: have we seen the beginning of the end for Tua Tagovailoa? It's uh, no, it's. I mean, I, I feel like if you're A&M, A you are 3 and 3 your three losses are now to Alabama, to Clemson, and to um, Auburn. What's yeah, the third one? it's yeah. Auburn. So, yeah, so it's not like you've got a bad loss on your resume. It's just it's you have to play perfect, and they play well. And there was a tweet from Matt Hinton earlier today that I thought was perfect, too, as far as summing up Kellen Mond. It's that Kellen Mond, in the course of a game, could look completely helpless while the game is still in question. But then as soon as AM no longer has a chance to win, he looks amazing. And I feel like that was the case again today where AM kind of made that fake comeback in the fourth quarter there to, to make it look closer. And maybe at least for those who were on AM and the points think that they might get the cover. But I, I think that Jimbo still has quite a bit of work to do if he's if he's gonna get this program to be in a condition where it can compete with Alabama yet.
1: Hey, Kellen Mond is just really, really good against varsity difficulty level. you crank it up to Heisman, it's going to get a little bit dicey for him. But as long as he's just playing it in the best buy on varsity, he'll be fine.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That was, who who was it too? There is one pass he missed in the first half where they were in the red zone where the receiver was absolutely wide open and he threw it no fewer than five yards behind him. And I was just like, Mike, that's, that is not the throw you can miss against Alabama. If you want to have any prayer of pulling off the upset,
1: Coming up on the other side, our big takeaways from Big Tex and the Red River coming up next.
2: As one door closes, another opens. The 2020 fantasy baseball season is over, but 2021 prep is just beginning. Join Scott White and me, Frank Stample, on Fantasy Baseball Today, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, as we take an early look at position previews, review mock drafts, and react in real time to the MLB hot stove. Not only that, we'll be welcoming in some of the best guests in the industry to try and figure out what was real and what wasn't from the abbreviated 60-game season. Listen Tuesdays and Thursdays on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else podcasts are found.
0: There's nothing on earth quite
1: like this. Oh it goes! Champions League is back at its new home on CBS All Access. Sensational. Stream every match of the world's most prestigious tournament live. That's incredible! The UEFA Champions League group stage kicks off Tuesday on CBS All Access. There's nothing like it. So I, I was very excited because the the game got started in Dallas, and the number one thing that I wanted to see uh, after talking to Ben Kerchival this week, heading into the Heading into the game was just Jalen Hurts's big and meaty hindquarters, <laughs> because boy, Oklahoma got going with the power run game early, and Jalen Hurts was doing that thing where he drops back and he recognizes that he's got a whole bunch of green grass and he's going to take off and run. Oklahoma jumps all over Texas, sort of outgains them, but a couple of turnovers allow Texas to be able to hang in this game. It's a game that if you just watched it without paying attention to the score. If you watch this game almost in cut-ups, if I organized them by first, second, and third down, you know, coaching style, prep style, you would think that Oklahoma had dominated in this game, but it was a one-score victory. So, you know, is are, are you willing to extend some of the same, this was just a, a big game, a rivalry game, a fun game, a competitive game, um... Not excuse, but at least uh, the context you're willing to apply to it to uh, the Sooners in a game that they they needed to win, obviously, to be able to continue their pursuit of a college football playoff spot, but then also for... Uh, for just being able to to prove to everyone that maybe it does belong in that conversation as potentially one of the best teams in the country and a national championship contender, how do you how do you analyze the Sooners' victory uh, with with all the context applied?
0: Well, I I think that yeah, you have to put some of the rivalry glasses on as far as viewing it and the results, but I think that going back to what happened with Georgia and just the style of play, the first half. Oklahoma outgained Texas 260 yards to 83.
1: That's the numbers. You know, I Tom, I needed the numbers. In my yeah. head, I knew that it was lopsided. Those yeah. are the they numbers. They outgained them 3 to 1. Over yeah. 3 to 1. Yeah.
0: And it was 10 to 3 at halftime because Oklahoma turned the ball over 3 times, including twice in the red zone. This was a game that probably should have been 21 to 3 at halftime and it wasn't. But because of their style of play, because of their explosiveness on offense, they were able to overcome the turnovers, unlike Georgia, who hasn't really had a chance to do that. So, I mean, I'm not worried about Oklahoma, and I'm not worried about Texas. This was the kind of game that you expected. I was, you know, obviously I had Oklahoma in my column for the pick, so I was hoping they can get that cover, that backdoor by Texas at the end. That hurt a little bit, but Jalen Hurts did not have a great game. Jalen Hurts, he had the fumble in the red zone. He threw that interception. And while the fumbles happened, that interception was just a bad decision and a bad pass that he paid the price for. But he, he made up for it. He still threw for three touchdowns. He rushed for over 131 yards. And, you know, C.D. Lamb did a lot of work. For the Sooners and helped bail out that offense. But he had 10 catches for 171 yards, three touchdowns, juked at least five dudes out of their shoes. It was just an amazing performance to watch. And to me, the biggest takeaway from this game, Chip Sooners defense. Oh my God. They had nine sacks yeah. and 15
1: tackles for loss. Yeah. I, on my notepad, I had the. For, from this game, I said that it was CD Lamb and Oklahoma's defense. And I probably would not have guessed based on the the premise of talking about an Oklahoma win. I would be ready to talk about Jalen hurts and where does he rank among the greatest quarterbacks in the country? And you're right. That's not what it was. It was CD lamb being ridiculous and an Oklahoma defense that has absolutely lived up to all the billing of the improvement in terms of being able to get pressure on the quarterback in terms of rallying to the ball like it's a, Alex Grinch's name might have been mentioned 25 times on the broadcast because of how well the Sooners defense was playing.
0: It, it was a bizarro Saturday because, I mean, LSU and Florida are in a shootout. Meanwhile, earlier in the day in Texas, Oklahoma's defense is having to bail out its offense because the offense keeps screwing up and turning the ball over. So. Yeah, no. This, this, I think that is the most promising sign if you're Oklahoma going forward, as far as the title hopes are concerned. Because I don't think that there's anybody else in the Big Twelve outside of maybe Bedlam. Because again, rivalries are rivalries, and they can get weird. But I think that if you look, Oklahoma is probably going to roll through the rest of this schedule, barring some you know injuries to Jalen Hurts or other key players. But the fact now that that defensive performance. That's something they didn't have last year. That's something they didn't have the year before. That was why you could never really count on them when it came to a huge game. If the offense got into a rut, they were screwed because you didn't think that their defense was capable of stopping anybody. But if the defense plays like it did today against Texas, that's a team that could win a semifinal. That's a team that could win a title game, you know, depending on who it's up against. So. It's the kind of complete performance that we've missed from the Sooners in recent years and it, you know, it just it it makes this team a lot more dangerous in my eyes going forward.
1: Baylor is 6 and 0 after winning in double overtime against Texas Tech. What are the chances that you give Baylor to be in the Big 12 Championship game? They're not horrible.
0: I mean, I I still think that we're probably going to see Texas and Oklahoma again, but if you look at the way things set up for Baylor, next week at Oklahoma State is going to be tough, but West Virginia looks winnable because Mountaineers don't look great. TCU doesn't look great. And then we're going to have that two-week stretch in mid-November. They're playing Oklahoma. They're Mm -hmm. playing at Texas. Those are two tough games, but both of those games are in Waco. So if Baylor can get past Oklahoma State next week – it's looking really good because if you look at Texas' schedule, they're already 2-1 and one in the conference. They've got some tough games themselves. They've got TCU on the road and Iowa State on the road, and we know, you know sometimes Texas heads up to Ames and weird things happen. So this is a situation where that game against Baylor on November 23rd between Texas and the Bears is looking like a big game. It could probably end up deciding who gets to play Oklahoma in the Big 12 championship.
1: So I think I've got my arms around these lovable Bears a little bit more. They – they're still working to figure things out offensively. And mm-hmm. you know, you made the comments before about, you know, this is one of those Big 10 teams that just happens to play in the Big 12, but defensively they're really really good. Yeah. And I I'm I'm fascinated to see how it goes when they clash with some of these top teams because they're where they are offensively at this point in the season on October 13th. Leads me to believe that they probably have what two losses in them, but, yeah. But who those losses come to are very, very important, and when those losses come are very pivotal. And uh, it, it makes them almost uh kind of like a old school Iowa statey type wild card,
0: yeah. Like if the two losses come to Oklahoma State and Oklahoma, but they beat Texas, well, guess who's the number two team in the Big 12 at the end of the season,
1: right? Right, Baylor. right, right, right.
0: And this game, I mean, it's funny if you look at the box score, because you see the final score 33 to 30.
1: Nah, nah, that game was. was... (laughs) was,
0: Yeah, it was 20 to 20 after the end of regulation. They didn't, they added the points on in overtime, but it was just, it was like a very ugly game, but not like a rock fight ugly game. It just, it felt like it was two defenses that you're not used to seeing bees good as they kind of were at least today like texas tech's defense looks improved over what we are used to seeing baylor's defense has been stout all year there were six turnovers in this game it was just it was an ugly strange enjoyable weird game it was a butt b-u-t-t the butt bowl
1: <laughs> what was the the double butt was when it was three to three for a long time yeah, and then three if, to you, three for if like you take the threes forever. and you but turn them 90 degrees it just makes big old butt cheeks Uh, Iowa state 38, 14 winners in Morgantown. How many did I got a little bit of eyes on this, but it was mostly when it was still competitive at, uh, West Virginia jumped out to an early lead. I think I watched, I tried to, I tried to watch the middle eight of this one. You know, I've been all over that middle eight. Uh, Mm -hmm. and, uh, and shocker middle eight was won by the Cyclones. They pull away 17 fourth quarter points, make it 38, 14, I liked West Virginia's fight in this game, but it, once the Iowa State settled down in control, it was kind of over.
0: Yeah, West Virginia's offense is just not good. They, they had 190 yards of offense in the game. And it was like they were, they were hanging around in the first half making it a game, but Iowa State made some adjustments in the second half at halftime, and you know how many yards of offense West Virginia had in the second half, Chip? I don't. 44. In a so, half. Yeah, in the entire second half. So Iowa State figured out what West Virginia was doing. It made the adjustments it had to coming out in the second half, and that was the end of the game. They just pulled away, and it it wasn't even close to the end anymore.
1: Mm. Um, Hey, so let's turn our attention to the Big Ten. Okay. Penn State's still undefeated. They're 17-12 winner at Iowa. Do you come away from it feeling significantly better? About Penn State? No. I mean, I don't feel bad because this
0: was what we were expecting for the most part. This is just kind of what happens when Penn State and Iowa play. It's usually kind of an ugly, you know, boxing match. And this it was, is it was also a situation where Sean Clifford had, you know, they, they've played one road game earlier this year. It was against Maryland. And Maryland's not exactly the most, you know, fervorous road environment not this not the scariest mo you know not the loudest place to play so this was clearly the first like true road test that clifford has had as the starter and he kind of played like it. You know, he's 12 for 24, 117 yards and a touchdown. This is an Iowa defense that was very good and has been good all year. It completely shut down Michigan for the post part last week and very similarly here today. I mean, Iowa outgained Penn State as far as total yardage is concerned. It's just Iowa had two turnovers, and in a game like this, turnovers are going to kill you. But I think this was just the kind of performance set for Penn State. They just have to get through, and that's what they did. But they're still, you know – I, I think that if you look at the rest of the Big Ten East, they're better than Michigan. We're going to talk about Michigan State soon. They're better than Michigan State. and It's just going to be which team shows up for the Ohio State game. And nothing I've seen from Penn State so far leads me to believe that they can compete with Ohio State for full 60 minutes, but they're still the second-best team in their division. You know what I mean? It's There's still a gap there because they've played two – above average teams and they have struggled to get past both of them, which Mm. seems like a bad omen to me.
1: So here's what I'm willing to consider with Penn state. I think that because there are so many young players in significant roles, we might be witnessing a team that can continue to get better that Penn state like could be marching towards being a team that can compete with Ohio state. Now, unfortunately, you know, what let's see, that game is late October. Are we about two weeks away from it? Which game? Ohio State, Penn Michigan. State.
0: Oh, no, no, that's November
1: 23rd. Ooh.
0: I mean, we're, there's a possibility. I mean, uh they've got Michigan in Happy Valley next week, then the week after, they're going to East Lansing, then they get a bye, and then they're on the road against Minnesota. And, I mean, those are three games I think Penn State's capable of winning and they should beat Indiana. So there's a situation or at least a realistic possibility that, you know, they're rolling into Ohio State where both of them are 10-0 and, and probably ranked in the top five.
1: There's there's a lot of sophomores out there on the field on both sides of the ball. And I feel like especially on defense, and I'm I'm just – I'm willing to consider – I'm willing to consider that even given what what limitations uh, Penn State's offense certainly has shown at times, like whether it's playing in this game or whether it's the pit game, like there there are times where Penn State's offense is uh, no bueno. But I I am willing to consider that that group could continue to improve and that we could catch uh, the Nittany Lions being a very dangerous team at the end of the season. That said, I I didn't feel like this win at Iowa checked any boxes for me in terms of me feeling like I was ready to level up the Nittany Lions. Mm-hmm. But like you mentioned, you, you won, you know, so <laughs> it's really, and I so think you're that you're still undefeated honestly, yeah. and that's, that's really good the enough. only
0: thing they cared about tonight.
1: <laughs> yeah, just, just win and everything will be okay.
0: Also, there was, a very questionable call as far as taking a Penn State touchdown off the board in this game that I think if the refs got that call right it's probably not as close or as scary as it looks at the final score you know then it's probably a two score win and it looks a little better so there, there is that context as well but it's just this is a young team it's a talented team like you said it's got a chance to get better but to this point it's it's still a team that's you know figuring out how to be great.
1: Wisconsin kicked the ever loving you uh, know what out of Michigan State.
0: uh Uh-huh. Yeah, that was a great lock of the week for me taking Michigan State plus eleven in this one.
1: Thirty eight to nothing doesn't even do this game justice.
0: (laughs) No. Here here's what people should if you didn't watch the game, here's the thing that I could tell you that probably tells you everything you need to know. Michigan State did not Cross over the 100-yard barrier of total offense until there was 90 seconds remaining in the game.
1: It could have been 63 to nothing in this game. <laughs> yes. Truly, it, it it was it was a choose your own number adventure for Wisconsin.
0: Yeah, and my whole thought process behind my my picking Michigan State was, you know, hey, they could take away Wisconsin's run game and force Jack Cohn to beat them. Well. Michigan State, for the most part, took away Wisconsin's run game. The Badgers averaged only 4.8 yards per carry. They held Jonathan Taylor to 80 yards on 26 carries. But you know what happened? <laughs> Jack Cohn picked him apart. He was 18 for 21 for 180 yards, zero or one touchdown, no interceptions. It wasn't like the big game because that's just not what Wisconsin does offensively in the passing game. But he just sat in the pocket Michigan State couldn't get any pressure and he was just looking for the open matchup and he was finding it every single time and Michigan State's defense just could not get off the field even when they stopped Jonathan Taylor in their running game they just couldn't get off on third down they couldn't even really get Wisconsin into a situation on third down that presented any real problems for it so this it felt like Wisconsin was like a 16 year old playing with his five-year-old brother (laughs)
1: I think that I came away from this one um, wanting to to maybe shift the the narrative or the talking points a little bit on Wisconsin because Jonathan Taylor is is a mainstay. He's a name that we recognize, and, and Wisconsin having good running backs that's a very easy place for college football fans to fall back into from a muscle memory perspective, but. I think the real tale of this year's Wisconsin team is the defense, which yeah. kind of lost itself last year for a hot second and boy, it snapped back into place. And so when we've got that situation, it was what it was Dave Aranda leaves and Jim Leonard takes over and Jim Leonard has his own player history, but his coaching history wasn't all that proven great instant results for Jim Leonard. Then last year, as we mentioned, you know, they finished seven and five. The defense has a bunch of injuries, but also doesn't quite perform up to the standard that we're used to. And I would say that good. This is a snap back into place. This is a return to form and maybe even exceeding it even further to the point where I think that Wisconsin's defense might be the best thing that it has going to try and win a big 10 title.
0: They have four shutouts in six games. I mean, seriously, they have, after six games, Wisconsin is outscoring its opponents 255
1: to 29. And I almost want to throw out those last 14 points Michigan scored. Yeah. That's borderline. I mean, that, that, gar- that was garbage time.
0: Yes. I mean, literally, <laughs> the only team that's really had actual success on offense that made Wisconsin break into a sweat was Northwestern.
1: And I maintain that was because Wisconsin broke out the spring game playbook for that game. (laughs) They didn't, they, they were not going to put any, any exotic blitzes or coverage uh, patterns on tape for that game.
0: And and they get Illinois next week. So there's a very good chance they're going to have five shutouts in seven games by the time we're recording this podcast next Saturday.
1: (laughs) Goodness gracious.
0: Yeah. You want to talk about Illinois, Michigan?
1: Yeah, I do. Do we have to? No, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm, hey, I'm uh, uh,
0: Illinois made a run there. For
1: yeah. A minute. And what and what do we make of that run?
0: That Michigan is got problems.
1: Oh, see, I was because I got assigned to Georgia upset duty, which, you know, lasted way longer than it should have and had too many dumb twists and turns and writes and rewrites. I actually didn't see any of Illinois's come
0: I I, I hesitate calling it a comeback, (laughs) but yeah, Michigan was up 28 to nothing. They allowed Illinois to score right before halftime, so it was 28 to 7 at halftime. Then Michigan got sloppy with the ball in the third quarter, turned it over a couple times. Illinois made it. It was 28 to 17. Illinois got a touchdown early in the fourth quarter and cut it to 28 to 25. And then as soon as Michigan was in actual trouble, they marched right down the field and scored and went back up by two scores. And then a couple you know, Illinois they pinned Illinois, got another turnover, scored, and just the game went out of, you know, back out of touch really quickly. I just I I, my takeaway from this is that Michigan still has plenty of significant problems, even though it mostly played well. I mean, they averaged seven yards per play they had nearly 500 yards of offense it's just they should have buried illinois and they kind of toyed with it or at least kind of i don't know I, you could say they took their foot off the, the gas pedal for a bit and were think, kind of maybe just thinking they could coast to the end and then illinois made them, you know start going again but i don't know it's it's even when michigan was dominating this game early there still wasn't anything about them that really struck me as a threat they still look like a an above average Big 10 team, but they don't look like a Big 10 team that's going to really do any damage in any games that count.
1: That's Michigan football, baby. <laughs> it has been, yeah. That's it, wait, wait, I'm sorry. Did y'all want championship contenders? That's not Michigan football. That's that's not what they do. Michigan puts together very very under uh, underachieving 9 and 3 seasons. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. Um, all right, so let's uh let's let's pivot to Michigan adjacent. Michigan on the horizon. Uh Notre Dame is just really leaning into this idea that uh our quarterback is not much of a passing threat, but if our offensive line keeps beating you up for 35 carries, we're going to roll up 300 yards. <laughs>
0: Yeah, Uh, you had more of an eye on this one. But from what I saw, I mean, they look fine. I mean, they can't throw book finish with 165 yards. He's only 17 to 32, 165 yards. They still don't really have that threat in the passing game that could be a game breaker. So they're kind of just relying on Tony Jones and Jafar. I. Jafar Armstrong only had one carry tonight. I thought he was like back. What was there any story behind
1: that? No, I think that uh, Jones just got going and they were, they were starting to work in a lot more of like misdirection into round uh, getting the wide receivers involved in the game. Like who's a uh, uh, Braden. What's his last name? Lindsay? Lindsay.
0: Oh, that dude is fast. Yeah. That's all I know. Yeah.
1: He's a sophomore from Oregon. And shocker, he's a track star mm-hmm. from Oregon. But yeah, like four four speed or something stupid like that. He hit uh the he caught an end around, took it the took at the distance. It was pretty impressive. But this this Notre Dame team, like basically uh what we saw here against USC was the fact that USC on the defensive line is not elite and they definitely don't have elite depth. So even when USC's defense was able to get some stops early in the game, by the time its offense finally caught a rhythm, which wasn't until the second half. I mean, King Slovis led four straight scoring drives in the second half. It's just that they would score in three minutes, and then they'd give the ball back to Notre Dame, and Notre Dame would take up eight minutes and then score. And so the, the advantage that was established with the 14-3 lead, they just never really had to push back on it, and they could just kind of defend it use that ground game to continue to wear USC down. And and that was the key over the course of four quarters was you get into the second half against this USC team. They are older, they are experienced, they are strong, they are big, and they just, they lean on you. And I, I thought about this game looking ahead at the rest of Notre Dame's schedule, and I was just thinking about how there isn't a defensive line or a defensive front left on Notre Dame's schedule that is overly impressive. And there's not a defensive line or a defensive front that I think is going to be able to come up with a magical game plan to just do that, that the physics of the fact that Notre Dame, if, if nothing else is, uh, is working and certainly the passing game with the in book has not been something that Brian Kelly or chip long feel like is their, their bread and butter. They're just going to lean on you, man, and the chances are you're going to break eventually.
0: How'd the front seven look? Cause I know they had four sacks, but, I mean, that doesn't always – because that's to me, has been the key to this team. I mean, defensively, they've just been a lot better than I was actually anticipating coming into the year.
1: Difficult to say because they were sitting back doing everything they could to limit the deep ball, mm-hmm. and so it was a lot of dink and dunk. It was it was a lot of Keaton Slovis drops back. He sees that everyone, all the you know secondary is backpedaling, and so he's just going to drop it off to a running back or like throw the a quick route to uh, like they they were breaking it. Who'd they break in? Uh, I feel like hadn't even had uh, too many catches. Eric. Uh,
0: Oh, Croman hook or yeah, whatever. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I have no idea how to pronounce it. It's like it's it's Eric Crumenhook. hook.
1: He had one catch against Fresno State, one catch against BYU, two catches against Notre Dame, five catches against uh, I mean, five, one cat, two catches against Washington, five catches against Notre Dame.
0: Yeah. So he's like they're underneath. It's kind of slot dude now.
1: Yeah. So it was a uh, it was, you know. That I, I kind of thought that the, the front seven didn't get – I thought Marquis Step, the running back for USC, looked pretty good at times, but it was tough to get a good read on uh, USC considering the fact they were going up against air raid no huddle, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, I, Notre Dame's on a bye next week, and then they get the road trip to Ann Arbor, and I feel like I, I have a hard time thinking Michigan's going to win that game based on what we've seen. And after that, I, I don't know what's in their way from being 11 and one at the end of the year.
1: Um, Clemson put it on Florida state. Yeah. Clemson showed up. Thank welcome to 2019 Clemson. Yeah, but I don't know. Trevor Lawrence still threw an interception. He probably still, stinks. He's still trash. Yes. Yes. <laughs>
0: But I wonder if he's okay. Let's make sure somebody asked Dabbo about the MRI. See what kind of reaction they get.
1: So the thing that's really uh funny about this one is the final score suggests that everything's okay. Clemson's back to whooping that uh whooping that ass, but if you look at the box score of this game, there's no one player you can really single out, and there's no one thing where you're like, Wait, did did clemson dominate in this game like wh- where's my 400 yards passing where's my mm-hmm. you know like big rushing total it's because clemson's defense was awesome in this game they forced a ton of turnovers and players like isaiah simmons really showed up uh the young defensive line was really feasting on a flo- f- granted a florida offensive line that has struggled a lot during the season but that's the one place where I think that you've got the greatest chance for uh, – we talk about Penn State and the growth and and trying to predict and project that that might be a better team at the end of the season than it is right now. The Clemson defense is where you, you look at that group and those players and you think, okay, so these are guys that – I mean, they are in new positions. The positions that they are occupying were occupied by the same veterans for three or four years. Christian Wilkins played damn near every single down from the moment he set foot on campus. Same with Dexter Lawrence. Like, did not take long for Cleland Farrell to – he was a little bit banged up at the beginning of his career. But point being, the the players who were there on the starting defense and the defensive front, they are – Uh, just now starting to have the first time in their career where it's like, okay, I've, I've gotten significant action in six straight games. And I think that the growth and improvement that they have right now, between now and the end of the season and from the end of the regular season into the playoff, if they make it to the playoff, those are going to be the players that I think determine whether or not Clemson wins a national championship. And I thought that that Clemson defense, the, even though again, the final score suggests it was a, Trevor's okay. Oh, no, Trevor's okay, man. Uh, You know, T's all right. He just had a little hamstring got a little tight up on him, but, uh, you know, he's okay. Justin's good. You know, but I thought that the story of this was Isaiah Simmons and just the rest of those young defensive playmakers that are just shining uh, and will continue to as the season goes on.
0: Yeah, if you're listening to this, do yourself a favor, if, as long as you're not driving. But if, you, if you're like at home or around a computer, just pause right now and go look at the Florida State side of the box score and just look at how sad it looks like Blackman had 66 yards passing, Hornybrook had 84. Nobody broke 100 yards in anything for Florida yeah, State.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody <laughs> broke 100 yards in anything. That should tell you everything you need to know.
0: It's just it is the it is a very very sad looking box score. Although like you said, offensively if you go to the other side, I mean, Travis Etienne had 127 yards rushing, so that was nice to see for Clemson, but it was mostly a pedestrian performance from that offense too. They were put in a lot of short field situations thanks to that defense.
1: Um Virginia lost to Miami. Uh what what else is on uh what else is on your notepad before we get out of here?
0: Uh I mean, do we want to address the most fraudulent undefeated team in the country? The Minnesota Golden Gophers? Yeah. They're still undefeated and they but for the second week in a row, they have looked dominant. They looked dominant against Illinois in a 40 to 17 win last week and they looked especially dominant tonight against Nebraska, but the problem is it's like you don't know how seriously to take it because you know Adrian Martinez didn't play, Noah draw was making his first start for the Cornhuskers and their run defense has been bad all season and Minnesota took advantage of that tonight, boy. They rushed for 322 yards against that Oscars defense. So,
1: Isn't it still Rodney Smith and Ibrahim?
0: Uh, it's Rodney Smith. Ibrahim had 84 yards. Here, they had three players with over 80 yards rushing. Ibrahim had 84 yards and three touchdowns. Shannon Brooks had 99 yards. Rodney Smith had 139 yards and a touchdown. This is, this is a Minnesota team that I, when I call it fraudulent, I want to be clear. I'm not saying it's bad. It's playing its schedule, and it's taking advantage of its schedule. And as I wrote in my Friday Five, this is a team that is probably going to be 8-0 at the end of October. It's just when November comes, so cometh the reckoning, because they're going to have to play Penn State, Northwestern, Iowa, and Wisconsin. But enjoy it for now, because, hey, maybe you keep getting better. Maybe you pull off an upset somewhere along the way, and what do you know? It somehow you end up winning the Big Ten West. I don't think it's going to happen. But this is a Minnesota team that's suddenly looking like a team that could definitely finish in second place in the West. Especially, you know, if it knocks off Iowa, it looks like a team that's at least capable of doing that. So, kudos to Minnesota. I, I know I've been knocking you all year long, but you're kind of, you know, you you're you're sticking it in my face a little bit every week.
1: I told uh, Eric Kay today that I'm just the uh, the clown in the dunking booth, and Bowling Green finally hit the target. <laughs> oh
0: yeah that yeah. was uh that was an unexpected well toledo for those of you who are unaware was a 27 point favorite against bowling green today and there were only 27 points scored in the game and bowling green had 20 of them yeah you so. thought
1: that georgia losing at home as a 24 point favorite was the most unexpected result no it might have been Toledo it's a 26 point favorite losing to Bowling Green a team that was averaging uh, 300 less yards per game than its opponents yes so now I get Woo. to sweat out my Bowling Green season-long under of three wins for the rest of the season as they are two and four midway through the year
0: yeah also special shout-outs to Maryland who went on the road and lost a per like a half-dead Purdue team by 26. And let's not look past Vandy, who lost to UNLV by 24 points at home in the bottom 25 game of the century of the week.
1: Louisville won 62-59. to 59. That's a regulation score from Winston-Salem.
0: That, that was on ACC Network. So tree falls could, in the
1: woods. Tom didn't yeah, see it.
0: <laughs> I couldn't see it, but man, that looks like cocaine.
1: <laughs> that game looks nuts. Um, Tennessee beating Mississippi State twenty to ten at home. Yeah. I think go that's vowels. yeah. Go vowels. That was a like like I would not. That dude can come off the roof. I would not say that is a false hope. Uh, win. But I do think that that was maybe like a that was like a feel better present. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you go to the doctor. You know, it was kind of scary, but you survived it. You were a big kid. You get a you know something cheap from the drugstore while you wait to uh, pick up your prescription. Feel better present. Mm -hmm.
0: yeah that's I mean I I think Mississippi State's got some problems but you know Tennessee's had plenty of problems of its own and it took advantage of an opponent with problems which is the problem that Tennessee has had a lot of in recent years not being able to do that so that's a good win for them also shout out to uh, your money line sprinkle temple 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 getting it done on the field just yeah this is this was a I mean it wasn't Outside of the Georgia loss, it wasn't like a crazy Saturday. There wasn't a ton of crazy things going on, but it was, it was an interesting Saturday. One thing I can't help but notice is, you know, Army lost again today. Yeah, seventeen to eight to Western Kentucky. I don't know. I don't know what's going on there.
1: Mm.
0: Army Navy's suddenly getting a little more questionable going forward. I don't know what's going to happen in that game. Hmm. Oh, and apologies, sorry Barton, but your Beavers not quite back yet.
1: They Followed. got run by uh-huh. Utah.
0: Uh-huh. 52 to 7.
1: Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. Oh, jeez. And it was I mean, <laughs>
0: that touchdown Oregon State's touchdown did not come early in the game. It was already 52 to nothing before the Beavers got on the scoreboard.
1: Goodness gracious. Um. Yes. Temple five and one. Only loss at Buffalo.
0: Mm-hmm. Which is a weird loss. It's
1: a very strange loss. But uh, but they'll be putting it to the test. They are at SMU next weekend on Saturday. That's a pretty fun bit of action for our beloved hoot hoot Owls. Now five and one. Uh, the fight in Anthony Russos.
0: AAC is going to be fun to watch down the final month and a half here because there's there's a few teams in that conference that are fully capable of winning it still
1: no doubt uh anything else any other shout outs we want to throw uh shout out to
0: barton miss you miss you bud hope you, hope you enjoyed the wedding uh, prove to us that you listened send us a text that said the beavers are not back as soon as you hear this
1: oh no 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 no, no. uh send us a text of your sister in australia listening to this, <laughs> yeah. finding out that you're not on it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's a good call. <laughs> to she'll, prove- be li- she'll be hearing this in about 20 minutes.
1: Yeah. Y'all y'all think who, whoever listens to this podcast on uh, Sunday morning while they're doing their morning chores or, or just sort of whatever you do with your Sunday morning, uh, you thought you were the first one to get it. No, no, no. no. We're international, baby.
0: listening to this in australia at 1 a.m eastern
1: just just enjoying the afternoon listening to the cover three podcast Mm -hmm. for sure uh that's tom fornell you can follow him on twitter at tom Fernelli. you can follow me at chip underscore patterson tom thank you very much thank
0: you
2: One door closes, another opens. The 2020 Fantasy Baseball season is over, but 2021 prep is just beginning. Join Scott White and me, Frank Stample, on Fantasy Baseball Today, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, as we take an early look at position previews, review mock drafts, and react in real time to the MLB hot stove. Not only that, we'll be welcoming in some of the best guests in the industry to try and figure out what was real and what wasn't from the abbreviated 60-game season. Listen Tuesdays and Thursdays on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else podcasts are found.